So welcome to the Practical Neurology Editors Podcast. And I'm Phil Smith. I'm joined by co-editor Garak Fuller. And we've selected some highlights from the December 2020 issue, which is 95 pages as a taster to let you know what's there. And I'm sure you'll find lots in there to educate and to entertain. So we're going to start, if we can, Garant, with um, the editor's choice, which is protecting people with multiple sclerosis through vaccination. Um, over to you, Garant. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Phil. Um, I have to say, as is so often the case, uh, editor's choice is a very difficult choice because uh, so many of the articles actually come across with some very useful messages. But we felt that the protecting um, multiple sclerosis through vaccination was timely and relevant. And we've all become really quite interested and possibly a little bit more expert on vaccination uh, in the context of the current pandemic. I, I, mean, I thought this was a really fascinating article because it makes you reframe the issue of vaccination. Um, and I think introduces and very clearly expounds the notion of vaccine hesitancy, which I think is a big issue, the slight reluctance of patients and uh, other people to get uh, vaccination. And I think uh, we probably have to recognise that actually doctors and neurologists and people looking after MS patients have probably been guilty of having a degree of vaccine hesitancy as well. And what they do is they very clearly demonstrate that for the most part, that's something that you shouldn't be concerned about. But what you should be concerned about is making sure that um, immunologically normal patients with MS are given appropriate vaccinations. And then obviously in all the patients that you're giving uh, immunomodulatory treatments to, you uh, think about the vaccination before and uh, obviously during the um, program of treatment that they have. So I think it's a really helpful and really beautifully laid out and um, it couldn't be more timely with our focus on vaccination. It's really topical isn't it because uh, it, it almost before it's published we're going to need an update to say well about the coronavirus vaccine you know, is that going to be safe and sensible for people with MS? I mean of course it isn't a, a live attenuated vaccine at least the ones so far available so uh, that uh, makes it more safe but um, you know that, that's going to be a particular interest. I suppose the other thing of interest actually is that there was a case of uh, transverse myelitis in the Oxford AstraZeneca study um, and uh, you know that whether that's going to be something that will appear more in the COVID vaccination era so that's going to be all very topical. Well I think it's it's quite interesting to think of it this is at two levels because they do obviously touch on the risks attached to vaccination for patients with MS. And if you're not actually recovering from a relapse, the evidence seems to be that it, you're pretty safe as long as uh, the patient has an appropriate immune system. But I think they do make the interesting point that, for example, with the flu vaccine, the conventional flu vaccine, there's a strong case to vaccinate the family and carers uh, as well as the patient. So you, you would, in essence, can wrap them up in a little bit of protective immunization uh, schedule, wrap around vaccine. And, and I think it may be if there's areas of uncertainty, uh, you know, that will be a better way to manifest vaccine hesitancy while we're getting information and uh, acquiring knowledge about this. Yeah, so vaccine hesitancy, new phrase, I think that, uh, you know, we certainly need to be uh, aware of and uh, we're going to be perhaps seeing uh, a new wave of that really with the coronavirus vaccine when that becomes available shortly. So perhaps I'll move on to another great paper in this issue actually which uh, is from uh, 
Frank Gaylard from Melbourne, uh, a radiologist called Descriptive Radiology Beyond the Hummingbird. And, you know, I, I love this paper, actually, because it's sort of beautifully illustrated. It's, uh, uh, you often hear radiologists talking about hummingbirds and hot cross buns and hockey sticks and that sort of thing. And he's divided these metaphorical uh, images into three, really. So the first is those that are reliable for a specific diagnosis. And he puts the Medusa head, which is the, the Venus anomaly. Uh, the ability to diagnose rare conditions, and he said the onion skin sign for Balo's concentric sclerosis, but also those that we love but are unreliable and, and can mislead, actually, like the swallowtail in Parkinson's and uh, the hummingbird of PSP. So, I mean, the, the things I, I learned from this really is uh, it's great to make neuroradiology attractive and we need our trainees to uh, go into neuroradiology uh, and, and have some clinical experience in, in that field. That's going to be important. But um, many of these signs uh, lack scientific rigor. And I think that that's also the case for physical signs as well in, in the clinic. Um, and there's also the issue that uh, by giving uh, a, a sort of summary name to something, you, you sort of feel you've got the diagnosis. And it's a bit dangerous, rather like diagnosing a syndrome like Teloza Hunt, which we had an editorial on this recently, where it stops you thinking. You, you feel you've got the answer because you've given it a name. Uh, and there's, of course, many, many things that cause Teloza Hunt syndrome. So those are the main takeaway messages I got from this. But I, I love the paper. Yeah, and no, I thought this was an excellent paper and another very strong contender for the editor's choice. In fact, the uh, publishers have actually allowed us to make it free uh, for a period so that people can access it without subscription and perhaps uh, attract and encourage them to read the journal more often. One of the things I thought was quite useful, and, and as you say, it is a nice illustration of how to think, which obviously we always quite value at practical neurology. Things actually help you think. But... Um, he refers to what radiologists are obviously commonly aware of a thing called an aunt mini and, and the notion is that you know a, a train arrives and, and you have to spot aunt mini and if you can recognize aunt mini that you try and persuade and or describe to someone else what aunt mini looks like and if they haven't seen her before they've got no chance and a lot of these um interesting animal and vegetable mineral um, comparators are uh, broadly speaking ways to remember how to recognize aunt mini so I think it's a really helpful and nice, nicely illustrated article. Great. And, and actually, there's a letter we got since then from Brian Gibney in Dublin. And he actually pointed out that the picture in the paper of the moose is actually a stag deer uh, and not a moose. But in fact, it's good because it, the, the image on the x-ray looks more like uh, a stag deer than a moose. So I think that, uh, that that's obviously uh, attracted some interesting comment. Thanks for that. I feel it's the kind of level of conversation we want our, our, our articles to engender. Particularly in the Christmas issue, which this is. Great, okay. Um, and then, Guy, there, there was um, an editorial and a case report on neuroretinitis, which is something that uh, I wasn't really very familiar with until uh, these, these came up. But um, you were going to tell us a bit about those. Well, no, I, think, I, I mean, this is, uh, a lot of the time, we start with something which is relatively constrained. And um, we've got this nice um, paper on Bartonella neuroretinitis cat scratch disease um, from uh, uh, Dotty Yap and the team in Dublin again. And uh, in a way, the diagnostic conundrum is given away when they say, um, 
Uh, she 12 weeks before she acquired a two-month-old kitten. And if that gets in the history, you're pretty confident in which direction the diagnosis is going. But what I think was really interesting about this is, first of all, it looks like optic neuritis at a superficial level, but it requires you to think about it differently. It has different prognostic implications and has different therapeutic implications. And in a way, that's what attracted us to the case. And it's very nicely illustrated. It's got a nice um, retinal OCT, which shows edema at the optic disc and at the macula. And it prompted us to ask Christine Lewick, who reviewed the paper for us, to write an editorial really to expand on the idea because we're all familiar with optic neuritis, but neuroretinitis is a, a separate category uh, which could be mistaken for it and other things, but you do have to think about it differently. And Christian produced a very nice discussion as to how to think about it. And in fact, the key being to follow up because some of the key features, such as the um, uh, macular star that you can see and is very indicative of neuroretinitis, does take a little time to appear. So this is something you need to be aware of even if you aren't necessarily going to be the person making the uh, fundoscopic diagnosis, because otherwise you may mislead people and, and potentially even think, for example, about putting people on disease-modifying therapy for a misattributed optic neuritis um, uh, as a, a clinically isolated syndrome. Yeah, so, so re really important, just as you say, just to think about it. I mean, so, so often uh, it's knowing that that's a possibility. And, and Christian actually has given us a, a really nice editorial, actually, with a list of possible causes of neuroretinitis here, which uh, uh, I think this is going to be really helpful in practice. So, and he's uh, referenced his paper as well from some time ago, um, from which he's reproduced a picture of neuroretinitis, actually. So uh, th there's a lot of other reading for, uh, for this condition in, in practical neurology for us. So the next paper we were going to talk about was uh, tips for trainees, Phil. And um, this was another very strong candidate for the editor's choice. And in fact, uh, within it is hidden a Christmas tree. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, I love the Christmas tree reference. In fact, that, that was one thing that uh, I really, I mean, a, a lot of the tips you'd think, well, we're vaguely familiar with them anyway, and maybe they're core part of our practice already. Uh, I'm thinking of the plantar strike for ankle reflexes. This is the only way I've ever done ankle reflexes uh, taught by David Chadwick a long time ago and uh, but he puts that as a top tip which is helpful I mean it's great actually isn't it when someone with Richard Stark's experience uh, tells us what he's picked up over the years I mean Richard Stark he's in Melbourne he's treasurer of the WFN he's a great ambassador for neurology and he's put in his 10,000 hours of uh, clinical examination over the years and he knows what he's talking about so when he comes up with some tips these are really good ones so what I learned from that and the Christmas tree yeah you mentioned that well this is one I did learn that um, of course in uh, length dependent neuropathies then even the nerves around the thorax have a length dependent neuropathy and it leaves a little patch anteriorly of numbness and it's shaped like a Christmas tree so uh, I thought that was a great thing to highlight I mean, I've always found the fourth nerve a bit difficult, actually. I mean, we all know the fourth nerve palsy gives you oblique diplopia when you look down and you go downstairs or reading or something. But how to tell which side is affected? And he's got a simple answer for that. You just put a, a, a tendon hammer horizontally and you see two images, one oblique and one horizontal, and it points like an arrow towards the affected side. I thought that was really good. Uh, and some other handy practical ways of say distinguishing c5 from axillary nerve l5 from common perineal 
radial nerve from cortical stroke, that sort of thing, just piecing those together. Uh, beautiful summary. Illustrated, actually, um, with him doing it, looks slightly strange, actually, these days to see someone examining without PPE and a mask, let alone with a, a suit, a tie, and a watch, and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, this is a master at work, I thought. Excellent. Now, I must say, I enjoyed reading it as well. And it is very nice and interesting to hear what the tips people have chosen to recommend. And um, he talks about uh, oblique saccades, which I've heard referred to by Chris Kennard as the banana sign, where you actually uh, distinguish and break up the vertical and horizontal saccades by uh, an oblique movement, which I think is very nice. And I thought there was a lovely quote, um, which is his first rule of neurological examination is never do a sensory examination until you know what you will find, or at least what you're looking for. And having watched so many medical students and junior doctors over the years dabbing away at the patient, you think to yourself, this is a really, really useful lesson and one we should pass on. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we get so bored, what, you know, paces examination, just watching people doing the sensory examination without knowing what they're looking for. So great tip there, actually. And incidentally, in the same issue, we've got uh, the medial hamstring reflex, uh, uh, L5 reflex, something that maybe is uh, overlooked very often. I know in an early draft of Richard's paper, he had mentioned this and uh, said he didn't really value it very much, which, which is interesting because uh, you know I think that in, certainly in the video that Francisco Ritter from Brazil, he's produced a beautiful video of uh, medial hamstring reflex, L5. Ever use that guide? I, I saw a patient not very long ago uh, after this uh, paper had been submitted and was keen to demonstrate to uh, one of our trainees the medial hamstring reflex, which obviously by this stage I had now become an expert on. Right. Okay. A couple of other interesting papers that we've got, and I, and I think we've got a, a very brief report of how to make uh, very cheap Frenzel lenses and uh, a very nice editorial that, uh, or in fact it's more than an editorial, from uh, Michael Halmagi, and, and Michael Strupp, who discuss using Frenzel lenses, when to use them, uh, and how they're useful. And, and they actually say that uh, trying to examine a patient with dizziness without Frenzel lenses is like trying to examine for weakness without a reflex hammer, which I think that's a pretty strong claim, but they, they argue their case pretty well. And so I would recommend that to be read as yeah. well. Yeah, and, and particularly now we can build our own friends or lenses for five pounds. This, this is a, a paper from Mumbai, uh, Dr. Donde, who, uh, yeah, just why not have our own friends or lenses in our, in our bag? We don't have to, to pay vast sums of money for it. So we, we need to get, get used to using those, I think, and, and actually know how to use them. That's the point, because uh, uh, it, it's, it's about the doctor seeing the eyes magnified and yet the patient just having a blur so not being able to focus on anything. That's the, the important component of uh, using frontal lenses. Um, and actually, what a super editorial we've got from Matthew Kernan as well, um, because we had this lovely uh, personal view paper, Dr. Vercule from Grenoble, who, who has uh, who had fasciculation anxiety in clinician syndrome, FASICS. Uh, something that we perhaps all had a bit of in, in our time when we uh, think we've got motor neuron disease. But um, it, it's, it's great, actually, that he, he's written about this uh, at a time when he had, he had a lot of stress in his life, wasn't sleeping very well and got, and got fasciculations and, and then was completely reassured when he went to an experienced clinician who said, uh, you need a good night's sleep. And it turns out that Matthew Kernan, who edits JNMP, described this uh, a few years ago and has written a nice editorial on it for us. So, and, uh, and again, 
uh, as it's often the case, I, I recently saw a patient who um, had exactly this sequence of events, not actually a clinician, but a paraclinician. Um, and the opportunity to read this article and the, the case report um, was a source of substantial reassurance on top of the reassurance I tried to provide for. So I think I would uh, strongly encourage you uh, to read that. And I think um, that those have been released again for open access for a short time too, to allow other readers to access them. Yeah, and, and the comment in Matthew's editorial that uh, part of the treatment was actually doing the EMG himself. Uh, we, we talked about this uh, yesterday. It is such an important thing that actually, you know, if you're, you're the one doing it, you can say, ah, oh, yes, this is all very reassuring. I put the needle in. It's all good news. And the patient goes away incredibly happy and relieved. Whereas if the neurophysiologist says, I'll write to your doctor about it, uh, then uh, they've still got several weeks of, of anxiety and so forth. So, so I think there's something about using the test as treatment uh, rather than just a test. And, and I think that's a good example, uh, Phil, because obviously that series of discussions has prompted us to uh, commission a further editorial from Matthew in the future to discuss exactly this point and the role of, uh, sort of neurologist-conducted neurophysiology and its potential benefits. So the other thing, Garrett, you've got two papers in practical neurology this week, plus a share of the editorial at the beginning. So, uh, and, and one of these is, uh, well, perhaps you'd like to tell us about each of them, actually. So we were two, were two of them. The first is improving liaison neurology services. And this has come on the back of uh, quite a large review of the national uh, provision of neurology services in England. And one of the things which is clearly a huge issue is that most patients with neurological diseases are seen by neurologists, if they're seen by a neurologist at all, uh, as a ward referral, as part of a liaison service. And uh, exploring this as a separate phenomenon, we're all familiar with inpatients, outpatients, and how we do those things. But actually, this area of interface is incredibly important. And I think we don't think about how we deliver it and uh, try and work out how to improve it. Uh, I think we're missing a significant uh, opportunity to try and help our patients. So the, the article really talks about some of the logistics, the idea that, uh, for example, electronic communication might make things a bit easier. A lot of things that we accept in everyday life, which actually has often proved to be quite difficult to get in into clinical. And, and maybe one of the things that COVID has catalyzed as well is the increasing use of electronic referral and uh, you know email uh, ways of communicating about clinical problems. So, uh, so I think that, yeah, that this has probably got the door already being pushed, I think, towards improving this with the COVID epidemic. I think, I mean, I think we're all optimistic in a way. In a way. We've decided we, we're going to get a vaccine soon and we're trying to see the benefits of and the change in practice that comes from COVID, which perhaps reflects an optimism in our uh, natural. Yeah, aim. because because normally we're so conservative in practical neurology, we, we normally will reject anything that's novel, as you know. Uh, at the moment, authors say, uh, well, this is the first time this has been described. We, we press the reject button because that's not going to come to clinic. So uh, remember, authors, if uh, if you want to accept it in practical neurology, it's got to be something that is, is known to happen already and is going to appear in the clinic. Uh, we're, we're not interested in brand new things. And, uh, but actually, coronavirus, perhaps, perhaps that's going to make us change our view slightly. Well, I think we probably are still, if it, as you say, if this is the first report. Uh, if that line feel appears anywhere in any of the article, it just uh, is not of interest. Now, um, but a, a first in practical neurology is a crossword. We, we've got a neurological crossword, Geraint. Um, 
And this is from uh, Sam Nasheff, who's a brother of a, a neurologist in London. And uh, he, he does crosswords for The Guardian. So this is a hard one. This is not the sort of quick general knowledge. This is cryptic. So um, it's going to take more than just your Christmas day uh, to, to get that one done. So um, in, enjoy that. Uh, I certainly have done. I think he was, he was a little bit unfair because he submitted the crossword um, without the solutions. And, and <laughs> clearly we both had a very different take on this. And that you, you, you seem to find it really quite challenging, whereas I found it utterly bewildering. Um, so I'm looking forward very much to seeing the solutions. Right. Well, I hope um, everyone is very much looking forward to reading the December issue of Practical Neurology. It is a bumper issue, as I say, it's got lots and lots in it, uh, and we're expecting even more and better for, for 2021. So uh, uh, enjoy reading. It's been great recording this podcast, and there's going to be more of these. So uh, th thank you for listening, and uh, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me, and um, keep, keep sending in your very good suggestions. We're always very grateful to hear from you. Thank you very much. Thank you.